jump into Mark chapter 9, but if y'all would, y'all pray with me before we open up the Word. Father, we, we are so unworthy of your great love and mercy. We need you every hour. And my, my heart and my prayer this morning as the, is that you would draw us to the, the joy of intimate communion with you. That you would uh, just call us into that place of prayer. And that we would access the, the power and the fellowship and the joy that exists in close daily communion with you. So, Lord, we, we pray that you would uh, speak through me as a vessel to encourage my brothers and sisters in the Lord in their personal uh, daily communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as David mentioned, we are uh, going through the book of Mark, and we are in chapter 9. Last week, Keith spoke about the transfiguration, and David uh, gave a quick summary of that for us. Um, and so I'm gonna, my, my portion starts off in, in verse 19, or 14, excuse me, where Jesus and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming down the mountain. They're coming back into the valley. And so the, the four key points I'm going to talk about today, uh, you see up there, is that, uh, is the experience of coming down the mountain, uh, faith and prayer and how those work in our lives, the, the context of powerful prayer, of effectual prayer. And then the last one is just some practical tips on cultivating prayerfulness in our own lives. So let's begin. I'm going to read the first half, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with him about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. There's not a sigh written in the text, but I, I think that's, I think that probably was unspoken there. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. I'm going to stop there, actually. So coming down the mountain, right? Jesus was up in the presence of the father with his three uh, closest disciples. He's transfigured. He is uh, up on the mountaintop. Anybody had the mountaintop experience in your life where it seems like all the struggles, all the pain, all the difficulty is far away? Young moms with little kids, you ever wake up early, going to spend some time with the Lord, you get, you get out, get a little, maybe some coffee or some tea, and you get your... Your, the Bible out and you play some worship music and you're, 
you're just ready to engage with the Lord and you hear the little baby woke up a little bit earlier than normal, right? And wakes up the other kids. And they get up and they know, oh, I got a busy day, got a, got a lot to do today, mom. I need to spill some milk on some sort of carpeted surface and I need to, I need to, I got, I got a lot to do. I need to pester one of my brothers or sisters till they scream at the top of my lungs. They're just, they're, they're going about their daily routine, checking off their stuff and your peace and tranquility is gone, right? You have suddenly left the mountaintop and you are now walking back into the valley of everyday life. Right. Some of us, it's not mom. Some of it's your your experience in the workplace. Right. You're on your commute. You're getting close to the office and you just feel that dread. You you, you work in a caustic environment with it, with an angry boss and an irrational boss. And you're you're just you're grieved and you're, you're anxious and you feel it growing. And you're about to walk out of that solitude of your car into the lion's den. Right. So we, we experience that coming down out of the mountain. And Jesus is experiencing this coming down out of the mountain. But the reality is, is life is lived in the valley. You're in a good place if the demands of life are pressing upon your time. They're, they're causing strain because that means you're in the battle. You're engaged. You're, you're walking out life as God calls you to do in the valley among the people being light and salt in the midst of the world. As wonderful and important as mountaintop experiences can be, the disciples' primary occupation is in the valley of service. And so be encouraged. God didn't intend for our lives just to be lived on the mountaintop. He intends for us to enter into communion with God through prayer, to find strength and power and help, to enable us for effective service in the valley, okay? So Jesus is coming off of this mountaintop experience down into the valley. There's an interesting parallel here. Um, if you notice in the, the, the beginning of chapter 9, who are, the, who are the other two people up there on the mountain with Jesus other than the Father? James, uh, yeah, Pe- sorry, three. Peter, James, and John, right? Sorry, I missed one. Yeah, excuse me. The other three, Peter, James, and John are up there with him. Um, but then, but then who are the two people that show up that we wouldn't expect, right? Elijah and Moses, right? And so Elijah and, Elijah and Moses both have, um, mountaintop experiences on Mount Carmel for Elijah, Moses up on the Mount Sinai. And actually coming, this, this process of Jesus coming down the mountain actually has a lot of similarities to Moses's descent from the mountain. When, when Moses, goes up onto the mountain, the people, in Exodus 32 through 34, you can read this. I'm not going to get too far into it. But the people gather around Aaron when Moses goes up onto the mountain. And he fails to be able to overcome their desire to pursue this idolatry, right? He fails. And so there's this there's this craziness going on. When Moses walks down the mountain, we see a revelry. We see all people running around, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. What happens when Jesus comes down out of the mountain? There's a kid foaming at the mouth, flailing upon the ground. There's, there's demon-inspired craziness going on at the bottom of the mountain in the valley, right? Um, it's an interesting part. I don't know if I'll put too much into that, but oh, sorry, let me add this part. Exodus 32, verse 25. 
Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. There's, there's enemies in Moses' experience of coming down out of the, off the mountain and they're mocking. They're coming against the, uh, the people of Israel. Who, who are the enemies in this story? We have the teachers of the law arguing with the disciples. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about, but it's likely they were arguing something about, you guys couldn't stop this, you, you guys couldn't cast out this demon from this kid? What's your problem? Is your, is your, it, apparently Jesus isn't the Messiah because you guys couldn't do it. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but there was some sort of contention going on. The enemies were around. And then there's this interesting thing about what do they do when they see Jesus? Verse 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Anybody else's version say something different than that? Overwhelmed with wonder, amazed, astonished. Why are they astonished? He just walked down a mountain. Is there, what, what, what is astonishing about a person just showing up down a mountain? He hadn't done anything yet. There's no miracle taking place yet. Why is there astonished? I think, this is my opinion, the, the, the commentaries are divided on this. I think some of that transfigurated glory, if that's the word transfigurated, the, the glory of him being in the presence of God and his reality of who he is being revealed, that it was still radiating slightly. I think they saw something Maybe not fully different, but something radiating about his presence that was unexpected. And guess what? When Moses comes down from the mountain in verse 30, in chapter 34 of Exodus, what, are, what, what is distinct about him? His face is still radiating the glory of God, right? He has to wear a veil. People are scared. I, we don't know. I, I do think it's interesting that word is found 11 times in the Bible. This, this word thambos is the, the root word of this word talking about being overwhelmed with wonder. Seven of those times it's in the book of Mark. And one of them is Mark 16. It says, as they enter, chapter 5, I'm sorry, chap, <laughs> chapter 16, verse 5, excuse me. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were thambos, alarmed. They were shocked. They saw this brilliantly white heavenly figure, and it caused them to be amazed and shocked. So I think there is a, a, a decent argument for saying that Jesus might have still been radiating the presence of his, uh, so, to some sense, his transfigured self. Here's the other interesting part. In both passages, in Exodus, someone is grieved about the sinful presence of the Israelites. And there's a discussion in Exodus chapter 32 through 34 about whether God is going to continue on with the Israelites. Right? He, he says, I'm going to send my angel with you. I'm not going with you because I'll probably kill you on the way. That's, that's the brief paraphrase, right? Who in this story is grieved by the unbelief in the presence of the people in this generation? Jesus, actually. That's a pretty harsh thing he says. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? So I think it's interesting to look at those two parallels between the story of Moses coming down from the mountain and the story of Jesus. I don't want to push too much at it. I don't want to make too much conjecture, but I think there's two pieces that are kind of important. One, up on the mountain it said, this is my beloved, God spoke, this is my beloved son, listen to him, right? That points back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. Uh, from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. 
So this story is continuing the idea that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. That's part of it. But then who is Jesus talking like? Whose words do, do his words mirror? In this story down the valley, in the valley, his words are mirroring actually the words of God. So in one sense, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In another sense, he is much, much more. You see this all throughout the, the gospels. You see Jesus is like David. He's the son of David, and yet, oh wait, he's the Lord of David, right? We see again and again that these types that point to Jesus, he's that and so much more. So sometimes the book of Mark and some of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, people sometimes accuse them of not having such a high view of Jesus and his elevated status of being God in flesh. And John, they always say, well, that's the, that's the one that emphasizes his deity, right? But there in Mark, subtly underscored is this idea that, whoa, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, but yes, he also is the one who speaks from the position of God. It's powerful, powerful. That's why, that's why when it says Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, it's not just like Moses having a face radiated. There's something changes about Jesus to what, what is inside of him, who he genuinely is, is revealed. Not just the presence of God changes his face. He being the son of God, his, his glory is revealed for a brief moment there. So that's part one, coming down the mountain. I'll say part one is the first part. Let me see if I'm doing this right. Am I clicking on the right things? Maybe I'm hitting the wrong. Oh, because I'm, I'm hitting up, Keith. <laughs> Technology. Um, okay. So let's read the second half. Starting in verse 22, we'll start there. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And the father, this is the father of the boy speaking. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead! But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. If you're reading the New King James, the King James will add fasting. There's a uh, a bit of debate on that one, on uh which uh, text is the original? There's uh, some of them have and fasting, and uh, some of the earliest ones just say by prayer. And so NIV, NASB, a lot of those, ESV will probably just say prayer. Um, but if you read the New King James or King James, they might also add in fasting. So um, I don't know if that means fasting is optional. There was a <laughs> there was a Bible scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary who was a little overweight, and he <laughs> he was in a debate with a, a skeptic named Bart Ehrman, and they were debating this this text, and, he, and Bart Ehrman's like, see, we don't know about this one. And he's like, well, that, that, there is some debate on that one. He says, I choose the shorter version, and he kind of pats his belly. So I, I don't know. So um, there's other verses that command us to fast, so don't get too excited. Um, number one, Jesus can. Mark chapter 9, verse 22. The man says, if you can do anything... Jesus seems offended, doesn't he? 
if you can, right? It's hard, it's hard to, to distinguish what his, his, his inflection was in that statement, but it, it seems very clear that he's implying that I, whether I can or not is not the question. He says, the question is, is whether you believe. He says, everything is possible for him who believes, right? I, I noticed something before that though. Who does, who does the father ask Jesus to take pity on? On who? The son, actually, here's what it says. It says, take pity on us and help us. Parents, if you have a child who's sick, if you've ever experienced having a child in the hospital with cancer, something really serious, if you've had a teenage son in rebellion, bringing pain and suffering into your house, when you are praying for that child, you're not just asking for pity for that child, mercy upon that child. You're saying, have mercy on us. Because sin is never done in a vacuum. Suffering is communal suffering within a family. So he is crying out, have mercy on us. Now he says, everything is possible. Is that, is that a blank check? Is that an absolute statement? Everything, everything is possible? I think we have to harmonize it with some of the other, uh, with the rest of the scripture, right? When we, when we take a, a word of Jesus, we bring it and we, we hold it up in contrast to the rest of the scripture. Um, we, we shouldn't expect everything to include things that are against the character of God. Um, God, go kill my enemies. Is God going to answer that prayer? No, no he's not going to answer that prayer. God, don't let me caught, get caught while I'm stealing. Carson, is God going to answer that prayer? No, no, right? That's not a prayer that we should expect to be answered, right? Bless my sinful choices. These are, these are things that go against the clear, revealed will of God, and the con- it's contrary to his character and his nature. But we should take everything to mean many things that we tend to go, that's too hard. Yeah, that doesn't count, right? Supernatural healing. Diseases with no known medical cure. Conditions labeled as terminal, permanent. Impossible financial situations. The numbers don't add up, God. That everything, everything is possible. It is possible for God to bring provision in the midst of impossible financial situations. Nothing's adding up. Nothing in your mind works. It is possible. Everything is possible for him who believes. The conversion of the vilest sinner. The person that we're just like, you know, I'm done even trying with this guy. He's real bad. He mocks God. He hates God. It's possible to him who believes. The, conver- uh, the victory over a lifelong sinful habit. God, you don't know how long I've struggled with this. It's possible for him who believes. A marriage that feels like it's beyond broken. He said too much. She's done too much. It's possible for him who believes. So Jesus connects it. What is the, what is the connection here? Everything is possible. Assuming it's within the nature of God. It's within the character of God. It's according to the will of God. For him who believes. Is that so Jesus emphasizes faith. 
He's speaking to the father who's praying on behalf of his son. So parents, do you know that our faith and our faithful prayers has an impact on our children? Moms, dads, grandparents, our prayers have an effect on our children. Jesus seems to imply that his disciples should have been able to cast it out. So he first speaks to the father. Everything is possible to him who believes. And a little bit earlier, who is he speaking to? He's speaking about the unbelief of the disciples, right? Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? So Jesus comes down. They can't drive out this demon. Jesus, by his word, seems to imply that they should have been able to if they had enough faith, right? And in fact, he he even implies that the reason they're not able to is because they don't have enough faith. If you read the other version of this story, so this story is also in Matthew chapter 17. And when Jesus gets alone with the disciples, it adds a bit. It it shares more. There's more to it. Uh, They say, why couldn't we drive it out? He says, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Those are strong statements. We struggle with those statements, right? Does anybody not struggle with those statements? I, one, of the, one of the questions we have is, well, is, this, is it that simple? Is the only barrier to me receiving anything I ask in prayer the level, the amount of my faith, the strength of my faith? Is that it? Right, well, so even in this context, we see that at the end, he says this kind comes out only by what? By prayer. Right, So we know at least one more thing is, is important, prayer, asking, right? So is that it? Is it just asking in prayer? I, I think there is a context within which we can anticipate and expect God to move powerfully through prayer, okay? So I think faith is huge. I don't want to minimize that. I think prayer is huge. You have not because you ask not. And then you don't believe. So those are huge. I don't want to run past those too quick, right? But I do believe that there is a context within which we can expect God to move powerfully in our prayers of faith. Sorry, I did that faith in prayer. It's the context of powerful prayers. There are other conditions God places upon effective prayer in our lives. Number one, prayer takes place in the context of a relationship with Jesus, and it begins with the very thing Jesus began uh, his prayer with when they asked him how to pray. What did he say? This then is how you should pray. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Effective, powerful prayer begins with a desire for God's name to be hallowed, to be glorified, to be praised and lifted up. Is your heart focused on God's name being glorified? And second, is your will aligned and in submission to the will of God? Is your desire that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Not not my will be done, let me, let me come to you, God, as my genie when I need something, and I'll talk to you next time things get bad again. 
right? I, 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 we shouldn't have great confident expectation of God working through that. When we try to manipulate God and use him as a, as a, as a crutch when we need him and then discard him when everything's going okay, right? It's a person whose life has come under the will of God. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 says this, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So it is in accordance with his will for the glory of God. It's also in the context of a genuine relationship with Jesus that is characterized by love and obedience to God's word. 1 John 15, and this would be a good, just to, uh, this would be a great thing to just meditate upon. That's an entire chapter, uh, but really chapter, verse 7 through probably 15, 16, 17, there's a, just a great section that kind of describes this friendship, this two-way communication of him revealing his will to you, um, of, of us submitting and obeying and following him and trusting him. Um, I think that is the place where prayer is effectual, is in communion and real genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 15, verse 7 says this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. So what are the conditions here upon asking whatever you wish and it be given to you? Remaining in me, right? So being in an ongoing, real relationship with Jesus Christ and my words remain in you. So a life submitted to the authority of God, of Jesus' word. That you are humbled and submitted to his word. First John three twenty one. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we, oh, there's a because, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So there's a number of places where God connects a life of humble, obedient faith to effectual, powerful prayer. The prayer of a what man is powerful and effective? Prayer of a righteous man, a man who's walking in fellowship daily with Jesus Christ, praying according to the will of God, humbly seeking and yearning for the glory of his name. That those, those are central aspects to a place where you can expect to see fruitful, powerful prayer. A couple more. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, 1 Peter 3, 7, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Why? Well, one, it's smart. But this says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If you're running around being a jerk and abusing those in your life, you really shouldn't have great confidence that God's going to hear your prayers of faith. Mark 11, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Powerful, just powerful statements. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then he adds this part at the end. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that, it's important, so that 
your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Unforgiveness, he is making, one of the central elements in prayer is confession, repentance, seeking forgiveness. That's why Jesus says, how should we pray? Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others, our trespasses, as some versions say. Right, so that's a that's a part of prayer is seeking forgiveness, and so I don't see God is seems to be making forgiveness contingent upon us and our willingness to forgive others. Right, that's a hard saying of Jesus, but that, that's what he that's what he says. Um, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So I don't see God when somebody says, "God, I need you to move this mountain." Right, they have a prayer of faith and they're they're believing God move this mountain, and yet they're 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 bitter and they're unforgiving to their friends. I don't see God saying, "Well, I'll move the mountain, but I'm not going to forgive your sins until you stop holding grudges against others." Right? I'm pretty sure that God's not going to do one and then hold back the other. So I, I think that there is a place in, of repentance and seeking God to transform our hearts so that we are people who forgive. So. Um, Two more real quick. I know we're, I don't want to get bogged down too much here, but um, I think these are important. Again, this is the context in which we can expect powerful, effective prayer. Motives. James 4, 2 through 3. You do not have because you do not ask, God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Again, what's, the, what's, your, what's your desire? Is it for the will of God and the glory of Jesus, or is it for the glory of your name and your own pleasure? This isn't to say that any prayer for yourself is selfish. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Please don't hear that. I know some people who are afraid to ask God for anything. They're like, oh, I don't want to bug him. You know, uh, yeah, that's selfish. Right? God, God calls us to speak to him as a child, speaks to his father in genuine trust. Um, and the last one is focus on God's mission. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then... The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Are you about the mission of God? God has appointed you to go and bear lasting fruit. Are you in that? Are you submitted to that? Is that the direction of your life, that you would be a fruit bearer in the kingdom? So are you on mission? Are you, are you submitted to the mission of God? So let me, let me summarize real quick. So effective, powerful prayer exists in the context of a genuine relationship with Jesus that is characterized by love, obedience, and faith. It's experienced most by those whose hearts cry, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, and by those who say, here I am, God, use me for your purposes. Is faith important? Yeah, you bet. Is it frequently the bottleneck in unleashing God's power through our prayers? Jesus frequently talks like it is. So I share these things not to minimize the importance of faith, but to make sure that we have a balanced understanding of the context in which faith and prayer are effectual, are effective, powerful. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to encourage you. Because I, I could hear that and go, well, God, I'm not perfect in obedience. I'm not perfect in love, right? I, my motives are sometimes questionable. 
Right? I, I could I could really easily critique and chop up my own heart and be and 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 feel like okay, I might as well not even pray because I got all these problems. Right? Anybody ever felt that? Anybody felt unworthy to come into the presence of Jesus Christ to seek Him and pray because we got too many problems? God's powerful work in our lives and His work through our prayers is a work of mercy poured out on needy souls who but call to their Father in their time of need. So you're not earning God's answers. And I, and I, I just want to make sure I say that because my list of conditions seems sometimes to be, it feels a bit legalistic sometimes. So I want to make sure that in the context, this is according to God's grace, in God's mercy, by his power, for his glory. My goal is also not that we just learn how to articulate truths about prayer. Okay, we can nuance this a little bit more, right? Um, that, that's, that's not the goal either. My, my heart is, is that we would take advantage and be encouraged to press in to this amazing privilege, that we would seek the Lord through prayer, that we would, the, the, the veil has been torn asunder, separating the holy of holies, and we can freely enter in. He says we can confidently, boldly approach his throne of grace. So, so do that. Don't neglect that. And here's four ways, I, I'm going to close with this, four ways that I think uh, some practical tips for cultivating a life of prayer, okay? Number one, plan to pray. Plan to pray. Make a daily appointment with God. Put it on your calendar and show up on time. How many of y'all forget to show up for work? You guys just, ah, I forgot to show up again. You know, missed six times in the last three weeks. You wouldn't be at that job very more. Isn't God the Father? Isn't Jesus Christ the Son worthy of far more honor than that? Set a priority, pick a time, put it on your calendar, and show up. I would encourage you to choose a time when you're typically alert and when distractions are least likely. Take steps to minimize distractions like put your phone away. If you keep getting buzzes, put that in another room. People can talk to you later. You need to communicate it with your spouse and your children. Tell them what your plan is and explain why it's so important. But don't freak out if you get interrupted sometimes, right? Jesus got interrupted all the time. Constantly, he, was, he had great demand upon his time. The crowds were chasing him everywhere. He would try to go away by himself, and he picked times that were the least distracting, right? He didn't go at, in the middle of the day and stand on the busy road. What did he do? He went out at night, early in the morning while it was still dark, right? He found times to get away, and sometimes he still got interrupted. But he pursued that time of fellowship and quiet with the Lord so that he would have power to serve the Lord in the valley where everybody else is at. Find a friend to hold you accountable and expect opposition and gird up your loins for battle. Think about how Satan has thwarted your prayer in the past. Is it sleepiness? Well, we'll stop laying down while you pray. Take a walk, right? Don't make it easy on him, right? If, if you're in a battle, don't lay on the ground and be like, all right, I'm ready to fight. It's like some, what is that, talk, call McGraw? What is that crazy thing where the guys lay on the ground and try to fight people in the mixed martial arts stuff? I don't know. Don't do that. I don't even know what that's about. Okay, I don't watch that stuff. Keith shook his head, so I guess he does. Come on, Keith. <laughs> Um, 
know that Satan will oppose you. William Cooper said, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Oswald Chambers says, no wonder. He says, the prayer of the feeblest saint who lives in the spirit and keeps right with God is a terror to Satan. No wonder Satan tries to keep our minds fussy and active work till we cannot think in prayer. You can be sure that your life and ministry will be impotent and barren of fruit if you habitually neglect this unmerited gift of accessing God's throne of grace. Second one is pray to pray. Pray to pray. What does that mean? Ask God to help you to pray. What did, what did the dad say? I believe. Help my unbelief. What did Jesus' disciples say? Teach us how to pray. When you begin prayer with God, come in there and say, God, I need your help. I know Satan's going to come against me. I need your help to focus. I need your help to, to draw near. I need you to guard me against distractions. I need you to, to open my heart, enliven my desires for you, deepen it, Lord. Sometimes you don't even want to pray. And you say, God, I want you to, I want to want to pray, Lord. Would you, would you overcome my opposition? Would you work in me to will and to do your good pleasure? So pray to pray. On Friday, two days ago, I was feeling really dry and I was working on a lesson. I'm like, man, I don't need to be getting up teaching about prayer. And I feel like this evil one was speaking against me and I just was like, yeah, I'm not good at this. I, this is, I, this, I'm speaking to myself, by the way, when I give these four tips. This is me preaching to myself. Um, and I just was like, ah. so I, I shot up this prayer that was weak. I said something like, help, God, help. I just, I need some help. I'm feeling dry. I'm not feeling, I'm, just, I'm struggling. I didn't walk out of that with great confidence, with great courage, with great, yes, God's going to answer. I pray that in faith. It's going to happen. I just like help. And then I went back to some other thing I had to do that day. And Saturday morning, my alarm goes off at six and I hear in my spirit, I don't hear an audible voice, but I hear something like, are you ready to receive? And I said, yes, Lord, I am. I went outside, went, went in my sunroom area and I started praying and it was, the emotions were there. The faith was there. The joy was there. The intimacy was there. I was alert. I wasn't falling asleep. I was like, yes, God, you're answering my prayer. I want to want to pray. I need help. And God heard and he responded. A little bit later, we, I went outside and I noticed a storm started to come in and I started praying and I, I felt the wind pick up. And throughout my life, probably since college, many times God has communicated his presence in my life through a gust of wind. It's as if I, there's times when I was, you know, hurting and dry and struggling. And God, it was in the middle of prayer, multiple times, this gust of wind would come up and I would just feel God in the spirit telling me, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm there. And the, and the wind picked up and boom, it hit me. And I just felt that, that there's, I started to weep. And, I, and my first words that came out of my mouth was, I love you. Less than 24 hours before I was dry and cold and being like, I don't know, God, I need some help. And then the spirit and the emotions and the joy and the life of the spirit came in the midst of prayer. So pray to pray. Plan to pray, pray to pray. Third one. Read to pray. Let your times of prayer be saturated with the word. Pray, read, pray some more, read some more. 
ask for illumination, pray for application, pray for transformation, pray the promises of God's word upon your life. Read through the text and pray those promises back to God. Pray the Psalms when you're hurting and you're broken. Pray the Psalms. Pray the prayers of Paul for the church. Let God give you a burden for the church as you pray the prayers of Paul. Then pray the prayers of Jesus. Pray John 17 and insert City Church Garland. May they we be one as you are one. The world might know that you sent me. City Church Garland would be one. Pray the prayers of Jesus over your church. And the last one is pray to go. God moves in power when we are about his business. Act upon what God brings to you in prayer. Sometimes we come back to prayer. We pray. God gives us a conviction or direction, a command, and we don't go do it. And then we come back to prayer and we're like, hey, God, what do you want me to do? God's like, I already told you. <laughs> Why don't you go do that first? Then we'll give you the next one, right? So it's, it's, it's pray to go. Pray in preparation and in intention to obey what you receive. We yearn to see the power of God at work through our prayers, but are we charging to the battlefront or just hiding in our bunker? The explosions are going to be at the front lines, Right? Do you want to see God move in power? Do you want to see his supernatural bombs explode? Well, listen to his call and charge into the battle. The book of Acts is a story full of God moving in miraculous ways, right? Again and again and again. And coincidentally, or really not coincidentally, it is also a story of the radical expanse of the gospel into enemy territory. It's people going out on mission. That's where the blow, the bombs blow up. That's where the power of God is exists. That, that's where you see it at work. That's where you see the manifestation of miracles is when you're out on mission with God. So pray to go. Okay. Kept y'all a long time and it's warm in here. So let me, <laughs> let me close it out. Um, so number one, Jesus is able. We read this story and the man says, if you can, what does Jesus say? If you can, Everything is possible to him who believes. Ask God to help your unbelief. But then a little bit later, he says, this kind, suggesting that there are some battles, I would say all battles, but this kind can only go out by what? By prayer. Faith and prayer. Let's, the goal is not just to understand all the intricacies, all the nuances. The goal is to do it. The goal is to Plan to pray, pray to pray, read to pray, and pray to go.